Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Well, the last thing that we need is like Bitcoin meditation. So, you know, I get covering Bitcoin while you're asleep, you know, awake, but we need it while we're sleeping too, please. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I have been known to accidentally fall asleep to listening to either Simply Bitcoin or Guy Swan, you know, serenading (laughs) me. And and you wake up screaming like economics in the middle of the night, right? Someone did do a very funny video of Michael Saylor with background music having his mind-blowing uh, things with calm music in between them. I, I don't know if anyone here knows where exactly to find that. It's on YouTube. But if you if you want to fall asleep <laughs> to the sounds of Michael Saylor pontificating about Bitcoin with uh, serenity music in the background, it exists. Yeah, you got to be a special really kind funny. of Bitcoiner. Yes, you got to be a special kind of Bitcoiner to, to listen to that. <laughs> well, it's like uh, it's like subconsciously sharpening your tools, right? All the all the tools in your tool belt. Mm. It's dedication right there. <laughs> all right. Oh my good God, morning. I think I found it. Sailor flow. One hour of relaxing. Michael Sailor speaking about Bitcoin. Crypto meditation. Sailor flow. It. Put that in the nest. Sailor yeah, flow. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to ask the same. I, think, <laughs> so I only got like funny. five minutes into it, but it is—it's—it's it's both humorous and obviously it would be effective in helping you fall asleep if you actually did listen to it. Uh, if you want, I could play a little bit of it. If you guys want to see what it is, or they can just go to the YouTube and find out. Either. Yeah, no, I—I I would love that. Go for it. Right, it's you, a good can little. Can you do me a favor, DJ? Uh, DM it to me in the uh, Swan and Swan DM, and I'll pull it up. Or if you just tell Absolutely. me, I'll look it up. But, uh, yeah. yeah, if you just type in Sailor Flow, it'll be the first result. All right, result. guys, two seconds. Quickly, whilst whilst he's finding that on the YouTube, um, I wasn't. I was just. I'm at work, and I was just going to listen in. But uh, hearing DJ Satoshi, then I've just got to give you give you some love, man. I feel I, I am in exactly the same situation. Friends, family, all you want to do is talk about Bitcoin. And as well, you also respect their, how can I say, you have to sort of, you know, give them the respect that they may not want to talk about. They may, they may not have the insatiable appetite that we have as diehard Bitcoiners. So where, you know, where, where do you end up going? You, you have to come on to spaces. I mean, there's, you know, once you've consumed thousands of hours of content on YouTube, you just, you know, you, you just, you want to join into spaces and yeah i just wanted to say i you know i, I feel your pain brother 
and uh, it's uh, it's good uh, good that we've got spaces almost going to 24 hours and they definitely will be soon so uh, I'm, I'm at my fiat job so i'm gonna i'm gonna go to being a listener but thank you all for doing what you do um you're all legends i'm not gonna say individuals names but uh, thanks guys legends man dj today is your day everybody just loves you it's i i happy birthday i mean you couldn't get enough here is the uh the sound here oh. Half of everything of consequence or value on the face of the earth becomes software. You want to make a lot of money? There's two ways to make a lot of money. One way is you take something you have huge conviction on and you leverage it. Like I'm levered long Bitcoin, right? I had 250 million. catch more love that. it yeah. that is fantastic <laughs> wow. honestly i gotta say i remember the days like more than a year ago like in 2020 when i would actually fall asleep to a bunch of michael saylor interviews because you know when he goes on he just goes on and it's amazing but it can definitely put you to sleep <laughs> In a little bit of seriousness, even the first uh, thing that was said there, you could actually meditate on that one idea um, and and let it sink in. It just depends how deep you want to go in any of this stuff. Like there, there's a lot of facets and a lot of profundity to um, to what's going on here. Which is for those of us who are obsessed and can't stop talking and thinking about it, it's not like we're just repeating the same things over and over again. There's further and deeper connections that you keep making. And then sometimes you spiral back to something that you thought about earlier on and you appreciate it at a much greater depth than you did earlier. Absolutely. And sometimes when I think about confirmation bias in spaces and also about like listening to things like that. Um, I think you're exactly right, Tober, that it, you can go so much deeper on, on all, not all of it, but on, on much of it, you can go so much deeper. And, and in that depth, um, you can uh, shed that confirmation bias. Yeah, I, I just think the, the more, the, uh, and I agree with what you're saying, the, the more you want to challenge yourself, the deeper you can go with the more connections you can make or the deeper you can understand any one particular facet um, of this. And it really is, uh, it seems to be inexhaustible. I, like there's, I don't think there's anyone um, honest and competent who says, I fully understand this thing. I think I got it all mastered. I've got, I've got a deep understanding of many aspects of it, but there's so much interconnectedness. It would be like someone claiming, you know, I understand how life works as well. Like, you may be able to tell when something's alive or not, even then might be difficult, but you certainly don't understand the entire complexity of everything living and how it all cycles and circulates. And would you even say, you know, like this, just to connect these two things, there's a, a question of the definition of life and whether or not something like this falls within it. Daily Tomer wisdom, get some. We have some new faces up here. I want to welcome them up and say good morning to Jordan Chilito. Morning, guys. 
Hey, Morning, good morning. Fellas. Thanks for having me up, guys. Yeah, yeah I've, been up, I've been around these spaces, mostly in the to- toxic ones at night. Uh, those are my favorite. Um, I love all the love that comes with the toxicity. Yeah, man. Love it. They're not really toxic, though. They're just honest. Sometimes it gets a little toxic. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's a quest for honesty. Toxic maximalism saved my stack during the block wars. That's all I'll say about it. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's a place for it, right? Like everybody has different ways of communicating and everybody has different ways of getting their ideas across and, you know, different people connect with different personalities and, um, you know, we need all kinds really to make the world go around. So if you're a, if you're a masochist and you know it, uh, just go to a toxic maximalist space and claim that you're a shitcoiner. I, I did, I did <laughs> have an NFT as my uh, profile picture for a bit. Uh, it was it was lots of fun. But then uh, they they came to find out that it was uh, screenshotted, so everyone was happy. Wait, what? You can you can right click an NFT and and own it? Wow, you what? just read my mind, Peter. You literally read my mind. I was literally thinking, oh, I should do that. I should like right click an NFT, copy, paste, uh, save, go into a toxic room and see what happens. Good morning and welcome. You are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We talk about Bitcoin here. So for the next almost two hours, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin feels like a philosophy kind of day we've got the shaman the bitcoin shaman tomer strolight in here so that'll be the first half of the show probably second half of the show we've got the uh swan private team coming in we're gonna do swan private macro friday today get you guys your macro fix I don't want to do news today. Let's do philosophy. Yay. <laughs> Tomer's like, yeah, that's, that's my, my wheelhouse. What are you thinking about lately, Tomer? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just picking myself back up. I had a personal thing that has kept me away from, uh, from really working for the last three weeks, which is finally concluded. It's not, final final concluded but the worst of it is all over and so um i'm 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 re-engaging i suppose and reactivating um my my thinking so i I, my writing has been limited in the last few weeks but i did write a piece that is going into um this month's issue of uh, the swan private newsletter which we call swan private insight which uh which was a pretty (laughs) A pretty good um, piece, um, and it just it, it kind of came up, and it was all about where conviction comes from for people who are investors in Bitcoin. And it was it, I wanted to go through this piece of like, why is it that with all these altcoins and all this fud and everybody threatening, uh, Bitcoiners stay steadfast, and it, and even with the price dips, right? The price dips, Bitcoiners look at, and they're not like, oh my god, the whole thesis is violated. It's like oh my God, what an opportunity to buy something because the thesis still holds. And now I can buy some cheap for less 
uh, for less fiat. And so I, I, I ended up going through, I called the article Conviction by the Numbers, and I went through all the reasons why the, um, the thesis is independent of what anybody else says, and it's all verifiable. So the, there was one section on scarcity, which explains how you can demonstrate to yourself unequivocally in multiple ways that there will only ever be actually just under 21 million bitcoins because there's there's a, a few satoshis missing because uh they get cut in half uh why um why it actually costs money to uh, an energy like real money and real energy to produce actual bitcoins and why you can rest assured that it always will and why you can enforce every one of these rules, right? Like, so this isn't up to somebody else to, that you're, you're hoping that the rules don't change. It's like you are the enforcer of the rules. You don't have to trust anybody. Why it's the most secure ownership, unlike the ownership of anything else. Uh, why it's continued operation is assured and um, why it cannot, cannot be imitated. So like when you take all of those things and you put them together and you understand why, that it's not just some guy standing up in a Twitter space is saying, oh, this can't happen, that can't happen. But to provide you the information to validate and check it yourself, you end up with this unshakable conviction. And, and the deeper you look, the deeper you study, the deeper the roots end up going of your, of your conviction. And I think this is really where um, the, the ultimate, the, this reinforcing uh, self-fulfilling prophecy or destiny of this thing comes from is the more people understand it, the more conviction they have behind it, the harder it is uh, to sway their conviction. And they become so convinced. It's like, it's as, it's as, these assurances are as real as the fact that I am conscious nearly, right? The fact that I exist. Um, it's so, it's so persuasive and it's so desirable. And so, this is um, this is what I've been thinking about a little bit lately, and uh, you you know you, we usually get these articles out to our private clients um, like a week from today, and then and then within a few weeks we'll get it up on our blog um, and be able to share it with the rest of the world. But I'm happy to go into any of those aspects um, kind of here in the in the Twitter spaces if people have questions about any of those uh, indications or dimensions of conviction. Somer, I, I love what you just said. Like uh, w one of my big contentions with um, new Bitcoiners is they don't spend enough time getting educated on how it works and why it's so immutable. So my hat goes off to you and the, the SWAN team for just educating people and putting this stuff out there. Um, if, if people would just take 100 hours and, and study it, they could literally change their financial future for the rest of their life. Yeah, it's a matter of knowing where to look as well. And that's that's what I, I'm hoping to achieve with this particular article. It's like, you know, if you come on the scene, and this is what we hear so much of, people show up on the scene and there's there's those of us who are trying to educate, but there's also way more voices with way more dollars and way more advertising budget of those who are trying to miseducate, right? Of those who are trying to mislead and pump alternative actually centralized projects and claim that they're decentralized or or inferior projects and claim that they're superior. And so what I'm hoping with articles like the, these ones, this one's a little bit longer, but I, I try to write quite a few uh, five minute ones as well, is that you can actually get some truth and verify it for yourself. And that that'll maybe open your eyes or help you shake loose of the alternative claims that are 
verifiably falsifiable, right? Like I, I can, I can demo, I can prove that their claims are false and I can prove that these claims are right. And, and more importantly, these proofs are proofs that you can verify yourself. So they're legit proofs. And this is, you know, I, I, I spent a few minutes last night in, uh, in DJ's room and there, there was, um, there was a contrarian who was asking uh, a number of, a number of questions who had, either been persuaded by or who was trying to persuade others of some of these alternate uh, views. And at the end of the day, you know, the, the pushback I offer to him is it's your choice. You can verify these truths for yourself or you can accept what's said by others. And if you just accept what's said by others, you are, I didn't say this, but it's like they are your masters, right? Like they tell you what reality is. And like one example of what he was saying is, oh, there's a whole asset class and it includes all these crypto things. And I know it because there's a website called CoinGecko and it lists all these things. So like this was his source of truth because someone built a website that listed these things together. They all belong together. <laughs> I mean, I could build a website that lists coins and soaps together. It doesn't make them in one class, right? Um, and, and Bitcoin is in a class on its own because as I was trying to say to him, it's the only one of these things that was created by somebody to be money, not to enrich themselves, but to be given as a, as a gift um, to, to humanity so that we could actually have something that's created and engineered and can serve as sound money. And this is not true of any single other coin. And it's not possible to be true of any other single coin that gets created subsequently. And so that puts it in a class of its own. And you can compare it to all sorts of other things. You can put it in the class of software. And you can say, oh, well, Bitcoin is software and so is Microsoft Word. But they're not the same thing, right? They, they're, they maybe are part of a broader class, but not as an asset or investment class. I'm, I'm rambling a little bit now, so I'll, yeah, uh, no, I'll turn it I, I think I think that's a great point that you just made about like false information and misinformation. That's why I really appreciate <clears throat> people who speak up, you know, I've heard Ant speak up about this. I've heard uh, D++ speak out about this. I've heard Corey Clipston speaking out about this and, and putting out a lot of truth and facts out there against a lot of these scammers. Um, because personally, like I actually <clears throat> didn't understand the full complexity of certain companies and what they're doing and, and how they're operating until I really dug deep. And I'm not going to name names here, but I think we all know who I'm talking about and, and how this like whole rehypothecation system works and you know and you learn all of this when you start learning about what is money so i do remember learning about all of it in the beginning even before i found bitcoin because that's how i personally found bitcoin is i started asking the question of what is money when i started hearing about how they're about to create trillions of dollars into the economy and like for the sake of the stimulus you know and that's when i woke up and i was like holy crap like how does this all work so i think it's super important that People that know the facts and that know how to convey them in an honest way get the information out there. And I think Twitter is a great place for that. You know, I just I want to follow up on that. I was part of a really interesting space yesterday um, and it was about El Salvador. And there was a bunch of El Salvadorians. I, I think that's how you say it, um, that were on the space. And there was a, a couple of them that were just massively ranting about Bukele and he's going to steal the Bitcoin and we need Bitcoin laws so that people don't steal our Bitcoin and the government doesn't steal our Bitcoin. And everyone in the space was trying to educate 
her and these other people like you don't understand what you have like the government cannot take your bitcoin like forget what bukele does with the state's treasury or the, the the country's treasury um like when you own bitcoin it's yours and they literally didn't understand this i mean it like they're in the first uh country that approved bitcoin as legal tender and their education level about what bitcoin is and how it works was so low it was astonishing and um, I think, you know, after like an hour of conversation in the space, we finally educated them enough to know that they have to go really get educated and understand it. Jordan, because- Jordan, it was their it was their inability to understand what money was. They had no definition, no understanding of money itself. Hey, guys, uh, I was ju- I was in that space. Uh, they were actually uh, members of the. Uh, the opposition, not necessarily Bukele opposition, but um, but um, just Bitcoin opposition. Yeah, and I've been actually coming across a lot of these people as well, and I always offer just to help them learn about it, and they say they're interested, and I send them resources, and then I never hear back from them. So, you know, it's, it's really on them to do the work, and I've also offered, um, I think... Um, Jaime, I think I actually connected you and somebody else from uh, Global Bitcoin Fast, I believe. Um, so I don't know if you guys are setting something up with uh, with her and, and her friends, but, you know, a lot of them are also, you know, I think they have, like, they, they, they come off as they have good intentions. And I think the key is, it's the same thing we hear everywhere. It's this miseducation. It's this lack of education. So the, to the point of, like, what is money? That is the first question that I think we should keep starting with is like trying to understand like what is money because, you know, they put out a lot of FUD about Bitcoin, but it can be said even more so about fiat, you know, and the FUD about Bitcoin is clearly misinformation and just a lack of knowing the truth, whereas the FUD about fiat is actually true. So, you know, like it's really important to, I think, start from the the ground floor of just asking what is money because that's what personally got me into Bitcoin is like learning how does economic like how does the economy even work how does money even work why is it even important you know why is it time and energy and all of these important things you know like we really need to get to the root of it because then people really understand it and relate to it yeah, yeah. Real, real, real quick my, hey, uh, hey, my El, DJ. El salvadorian uh, story is that i'm drinking a cup of coffee from el salvador a uh, guy uh, running a company called charito cafe and I literally paid for this over lightning on Monday. They shipped it to me on Wednesday. So I was making coffee yesterday and today, man. So a lot of people from El Salvador do get it. And I don't know if this is a small population of the sample size that's kind of negative or needs to be educated, but business is happening, you know? Yeah. Guys, it's unstoppable, guys. It's it's unstoppable. I I would say this. uh, you know, there's bad actors everywhere. We just need to sort of like uh, know them. And, and I'm not saying like, no, you, it's 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 healthy to be anti or at least hold your governments to account. That's that's not the problem. It's just like when you are a bad actor against everything to do with Bitcoin and, and actually not want to take the resources and learn it. It's not just Salvadorians. It's like there's a lot of bad actors everywhere, shitcoiners included. Um, but I did jump up on the space because I heard philosophy and I was like, oh, yeah, great. And Tomer, I was, uh, and Alex too, I was just wondering who you guys feel are like your either favorite or most, more, most influential philosophers. 
Okay, I'm happy to answer that. I um, I just wanted to add something to what DJ Satoshi was saying, and then I'll switch over to your answer, because uh, he was saying this very important point, which he says, the journey for him begins with asking the question, what is money? And and, and the point that I just wanted to make on that is, it turns out to be a very, very complicated answer, right? It's not, it's not, and this is where some people get challenged. It's like, well, you know, like if, if I say, what is water? Someone might say, well, it's this wet liquid or it's hydrogen, two hydrogens and one oxygen and it can, and it freezes. And it, so you start to go down this path. And when you start to ask the same question about what is money, you, you end up asking uh, questions like, why do we need it? You know, and what makes it good versus bad. And so the answers become really complicated. And part of where we lose people, um, and it's it's on them, it's not on us. It's like they're not interested. They want an easy answer to a complicated question. And you can offer an easy answer to a complicated question, but then they're not satisfied and they ask layers and layers and layers of more questions, but they've they've exhausted their own energy to listen to the answers. And that that's what I found was with the person I was uh we were speaking with in last night in your room. He just he didn't want to hear the answers, he wanted to keep changing the subject. Um and and that was I, I didn't stay for very long, but I found that unfortunate. So now I, I kind of finish there, and I'll, I'll answer your your question. Um, as far as philosophers are concerned, I, th- I think um, there's kind of the class in, in the classics. It, the ancient Greeks are as, especially the greatest of all, who is Aristotle, um, is, is very valuable in terms of learning how to think. I, th- um, I think reading Plato, who wrote about Socrates, is also very fascinating because there's a lot of these moral uh, pieces. When we move to modern philosophy, um, I think especially if you want to talk about money, and I won't read the whole speech again, Alex, uh, but Ayn Rand uh, thought a great deal about civilization and the role that money plays within it and the role of truth and objectivity. I mean, she named her philosophy objectivism. And and, um, and I, I think... I think had she still been alive today, she, you know, she certainly was qualified as being toxic towards the untruthful. I, I imagine she would have said what, given Bitcoin some very serious consideration um, at her time, gold was what uh, she felt was important. Uh, so I, I think those are all really valuable uh, philosophers to read. There's lots of other interesting areas, but there's so much depth. Uh, just if you study the original ancient Greeks and then uh, and then her. Yeah, great question. So to me, you got to break it down into the, to the classics and then the modern, right? In the classics, I agree with Tomer, uh, Aristotle, Plato, Ayn Rand. I really like Marcus Aurelius. Like the dude had a lot of really interesting thoughts. The Stoic philosophies, I, I, uh, I connect with that a lot. I think it's very useful, especially for people who have difficulty kind of managing their anxiety or things like that. Like if you can, if you can connect with stoic philosophy, I think it'll be very helpful for you as well as by the way, learning how, how meditation works specifically transcendental meditation. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but out of body, basically it's very good for you. My humble opinion. And then for modern kind of medium modern if you've never heard of this guy frederick bastiat i would suggest go check him out there's a book called the law i personally feel like it should be required reading for all human beings because it clearly defines the line between freedom and tyranny in terms that everybody can understand and in 
the behaviors that are described by this guy are are easily identifiable. And once you understand what the behaviors are, then um, the rest starts to make a lot more sense. And then for modern, I mean, there's Bitcoin philosophers too. Tomer's probably my favorite Bitcoin philosopher. And then uh, and there's Breedlove too. I mean, I think um, he, he goes pretty deep on a lot of stuff too. Yeah, I did share one of my philosophical – interestingly enough, I didn't know we'd be talking about philosophy today, but I shared earlier this morning, and now it's up in the nest. I think it's the second item from the last, um, a piece I called uh, uh, What is the Essence of Bitcoin? And uh, it's a philosophical piece that I wrote uh, about 10 months ago, which really talks about, well, what is morality? And uh, and I point out in nature, and this this kind of ties into some of the stuff that Jason Lowry is saying, but it's a it's a slightly different take on it. Well, like what's in he talks about, like in, if you look at a teaspoon of water under a microscope, you'll see that it's war. That it's animals, you know, it's one-celled organisms eating other one-celled organisms and projecting force. Which in that article I referred to as the law of the jungle. Uh, in the jungle, you take. Right, the the plant takes the sunlight from the sun and gives nothing in return. The animal that eats the plants, the herbivore, eats the plant and gives nothing in return. The carnivore eats the eats the weak animal and gives nothing in return. And that is the law of the jungle: giving nothing in taking by force and giving nothing in return. And then I pointed out there's a different thing that um, which only humans really are capable of at any scale, which is trade which isn't taking, it's trading. It's offering the best that you can give for the best that someone else can give, not where one takes from the other, but where each one benefits from it. And that that's kind of the essence of a lot of this morality. And uh, But the problem is we create these laws to try to enforce trade because it's a better situation to live under than than theft. And, um, and the, the problem with those laws is that they're breakable, right? And it's like you write them on a piece of paper and then you need to enforce them by force, which is, again, why we end up having war and police forces and, all, and armies and all this kind of thing. And, and the point that I, the, the big insight for me was, well, Bit, hold on a second. Bitcoin has taken the laws of physics and the laws of mathematics and made it, so at least in the context of money, you can't take, you can't steal anymore. No, ma- no matter how much force you use, you need more force than all the energy in the universe to break these cryptographic functions. And so it enforces in the realm of money, thou shalt not steal. Um, thou can- it changes it to thou cannot steal, right? Thou cannot take. And so it brings the law of the economy, the law of man into the realm of the law of nature. It's, it, it unifies these two things where in the law of nature, it was brute force um, and the law of the economy, it was compliance and the, and the need to retaliate with force to no, there's no longer retaliation. In fact, Bitcoin disarms those who would initiate force against you from being able to use force to take your money away. And that's the and that's this epic discovery of such or invention, whatever you want to call it, of such tremendous significance because it changes reality. Like up until Bitcoin, in reality, someone could kill you and take your money. Now, someone can kill you, but they can't take your money. You know, it'd be great if someone could come up with an invention where someone can't kill you. We haven't seen that one yet, but we have now someone can't take your property from you through force. And that is an incredible change in the rules of existence. So if you want to read the article, it's... um, it's posted in the nest. 
and and trading just killed violence in general right like in that sense it was a solution against violence it was but it but it it's like we needed we always need enforcers using physical force like the threat of violence of retaliatory violence to make trade work because we always have people who are lying and cheating and stealing who are not traders right who are dishonest people and even within ourselves like we're honest many of us are honest most of the time but sometimes we see something we can get away with so we lie or cheat or steal to a lesser extent and and you know what this is not in the article but i think one of the things that by virtue of creating this reliability this enforcement mechanism this is one of the ways that bitcoin changes you it makes you see you know what there's no point in me directing my energies to thinking of crafty ways to steal stuff i'm going to think of clever ways to create stuff because i can rely on trade more than i could rely on trade before i can direct more energy towards building rather than to def- towards defending bitcoin solves the defending your property problem so it allow this is one of the ways in which bitcoin changes you uh, by giving you assurances that your property will be protected and by also giving you conviction that there's no point in trying to get away with too much evil and like we're in a transitionary period right and if you know if you know people who've been in bitcoin for a while you actually find you can trust them a great deal because they've been transformed by this whereas if you see the people who are trying to get rich quick in these pump and dump scams you know that they're not ready to be trusted yet because their whole scheme is creating something and getting the heck out of it like passing the hot potato. So we're in this transitionary phase, but I think when bitcoin actually takes over as money for, or when you're interacting with people who are bitcoiners and accept it as money, you you just have a higher um caliber of character. And it's not that these people were born with a higher caliber of character. Some yes, some no, but bitcoin has raised the caliber of their character. And for anyone who went down to the bitcoin conference or who deals with bitcoiners, I think you will be able to say, "Oh yeah, I see that in my experience with bitcoiners." Right? Like these are people who I know are good for their word because they value trade implicitly. They don't have to read my essay it's implicit now right like that that they value trade over theft they see the benefit of giving and working right the, the proof of work um uh, of doing something valuable for somebody else uh, doing something of value that somebody else finds valuable that you can trade this is all so baked into the protocol and and the nature of the thing that you don't need you don't need a philosopher to call you out if you just live the life um then it changes you in that way as well i think it's nice as as someone who tries to think philosophically and describe things that i can try to put my finger on the, on some of these factors but um but you don't need you don't need to read philosophy right like you don't need to read philosophy to know that you shouldn't jump off a building or that you shouldn't hit yourself with a hard rock and it's kind of the same thing with bitcoin you don't need to read philosophy when you know how it works to know that you shouldn't waste your time trying to steal someone's bitcoin everybody's processing yeah i was gonna say this thing on but i i know i, I said a few things that take no, some time. I, I really enjoyed it um tomer i like mind blown you know i i've experienced breedlove's philosophy too on on what is money but your whole effort of you know take it into your own hands like that's how it was when i first got into bitcoin um you know I, i was a little afraid i was nervous especially when you saw maxis talking about how much time they spend you're like oh 
let me follow those guys, you know, uh, quote unquote, un unsung heroes. But then, you know, bear market occurs and, and next thing you know, you're alone. Well, the best thing to, to give hope is education. So to your point, going down that rabbit hole, personally, learning about uh, the Bitcoin uh, protocol and just getting into programming, like even learning like command line, just simple things so that I could build up tools to better understand. Now, a lot of people aren't going to go down that route, but, you know, reading the books and all of the education podcasts, long story short, it was that knowledge that really gave me more confidence and it wasn't a person or an individual it was the collection of thoughts but you know i, I totally agree with you i follow what you're saying that it's it's yeah <laughs> quite the experience yeah and, and maybe add, oh, sorry okay. sorry one, one thing uh i just think that uh that's why the philosophy side is way more approachable to many because the technical aspect is, is way more complicated just to average people when i got started it was like a lot what about the technical stuff? So people got lost there. There was like 99% of people who weren't programmers who were fighting against like the Ethereum folks about like technical aspects they didn't even understand. So there was like really, really small amount of people that actually even actually understand what a node is or something like that. So they started fighting on Twitter about technical aspects and they would just like zoom out and approach it like more down-to-earth kind of way it's like way way more let's say easier approach down-to-earth approach and then maybe the technical aspect but if you're not technical clearly if you're not a native english speaker or something like that like just like what a node is what what, what these things are can be really complicated and the, philo the philosophy side in that sense is a way and the what is money side is like way better approach in the beginning than to start fighting like what a what a what a block size should be or something like that because ninety nine percent of people have are completely unqualified to even like discuss those matters. Yeah, you know this kind of comes down to um, as Bitcoiners we have to have discernment to understand who the hell we're talking to. You know we talked about this a couple of days ago. I'll give you guys a quick analogy, maybe a way to think about it. I think we all want to orange pill everybody. <laughs> if you're a Bitcoiner anyway, you do. If you're new and you're trying to figure out what this thing is, you're still in that space. But if you're talking to somebody who is new, if we're out fishing on a boat and we have different types of bait, so to speak, you have all the tools in your tool belt, different concepts of Bitcoin, tools in your tool belt to explain stuff to people. And we're out on the boat. The tools are the bait. The fish are in the water. What you don't do is jump in the water and swim after a fish and grab it and start stuffing random bait in the fish's mouth because that's not the way to catch a fish. you got to figure out what the fish wants to eat first and then feed him what he wants to eat. So everybody's different. I'm sorry. I'm just like dying laughing over here because I went to a, a barbecue for Memorial Day, right? And the first thing I said to my cousin was like, man, what do you think about the economy? And it's like money printer go burr shit. And he's like, dude, how the, how the hell you start a conversation like that? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. You guys got to like, you know, you get to a point where you start to accumulate knowledge as a Bitcoiner that the average person really doesn't understand. And that's a weird place to be because you're trying to communicate to them in these new concepts that you understand now but there's a pretty high probability that normies aren't going to understand it. So you just got to back up, <laughs> back up. 
Calm down, Bitcoiner. One other thought while I'm, while I'm pontificating, there may be people who are intimidated by the thought of having to learn some of this stuff. And, um, and the thing I want to say, say to everybody is you've learned harder things before in your life. You've, you kind of forget now, but you were born a baby. You didn't know how to read. You didn't know how to speak. You didn't understand language. You didn't know how to stand up and walk or run. And these are these are things that you decided you wanted to learn because you saw other people doing them and you wanted to be able to participate in this and you, you followed along and it took time and, and it took, and there were mistakes involved, right? Like the first time you tried to stand up, you probably fell down. And the first time you tried to take a step, you probably tripped and fell. And the first time you tried to run, you probably skinned your knee. We probably all remember all of these things. So it's, you don't go from zero to perfection in any learning experience, but your motivation is what keeps you going. And we all, you know, and it's just if you anyone has young kids or kids who are no longer young, but they remember when they were trying to teach them to read, it was another one of these things. Some kids learn faster, some kids learn slower, but eventually we all overcome these obstacles. And so it's just it, like if your motivation is there, you have the capacity to do this. This is not so difficult that uh, you, you don't need to understand exactly how cryptography works precisely. You don't need to understand all the mathematical operations behind it. But when you understand the principles behind it, that you're starting by picking a random number in such a large space of numbers that it's if someone was guessing trillions of numbers a second for the entire history of the universe, they wouldn't have a chance of guessing it. Now you understand the, where the security in cryptography comes from because that's what it is you're hiding you're hiding in such a vast space that anyone playing hide and seek with you can never find you in the entire history of the universe and then you've got these abilities to prove to prove things so it, there's always interesting ways to uh, come to understand this without having to be a programmer uh, but it, there's also uh, some humility in listening to people who have thought a lot about this and who can understand the um and explain, understand and explain the, um, what's the word that I'm looking for here? The, um, the rivalry that exists in cryptography, right? That everyone is, you're always presuming that someone's trying to attack you. And so you're just trying to create this incredible defensive layer so that no attack against you can succeed. And, and, that's, and that goes back to the article that I was mentioning, right? If you are so in unattackable, that nobody can bother, that everyone can see that there's no point in attacking you. Nobody bothers to attack you and they deal with you on different terms. And that's, and that's the big thing here, right? Like we, we've created something, Satoshi's created something that is essentially unattackable um, and it welcomes attack. It actually gets stronger by being attacked. So it, it benefits from it, but it's, it's, nobody can successfully attack it. And in that, it ultimately teaches everybody the lesson. Stop trying to attack other people, start working with them. You know, Tomer, I just I just want to piggyback on that. Like, I am not a technically savvy guy at all. And so understanding something technological and, uh, you know, and technical from a technological standpoint is very difficult for me. And I will say the deeper I got into into to, to Bitcoin um, from a non coding standpoint, it actually became really clear to me how simple Bitcoin is. And I think its beauty is in its simplicity, right? It's actually not that difficult to understand. I just think, you know, if you sit down and you try and read the white paper, like my eyes glossed over and I, I just totally didn't get it. 
and I had to reread sections of it like multiple times. But uh, listening to some podcasts, watching some people articulate like in really simple terms what it is and how it worked, it just totally opened my eyes and I got it, you know, almost within within minutes. Uh, and then the deeper I went down the path of learning, the more I understood. And its simplicity is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, that's the whole point. How, how like, I'm, I'm a programmer a little bit, so, yeah, the simplicity is the, the entire thing. And the decentralization is the only metric that actually matters, and the rest is only, like, like if, if the decentralized, every choice has to be towards decentralization, and that should be the metric. And a lot of people, you know, discuss the transaction per minute or whatever per second, but, you know, it's... That's the main metric, the centralization. And the rest is just like, you know, small stuff compared to that. And the reason decentralization matters most is because that's the incorruptibility, right? That's the, the guaranteed promise behind this thing, that it, none of it's, that, that you can have conviction behind it, is that nobody can take it over. And that means nobody's in charge of it. And so then when you look at how Bitcoin achieves decentralization on so many dimensions, right? It's not just decentralized in one dimension. It's decentralized everywhere. Like there's, there's obviously many nodes, so you have to destroy all the nodes to, to take it over, um, which, which is one form of decentralization. But your identity in Bitcoin is decentralized. You don't need any government ID. You don't need anybody's permission. You just need to generate a high entropy random number. And now you're on the system. And so you can do it. You don't need, you don't need, you can be anywhere in the world. You can just toss a coin a whole bunch of times to generate such a, such a number. And that's all you need to, so getting into the system is completely decentralized and, and obviously making any changes to the code because everyone can run their own node and everybody needs to change it for it to be changed universally. Um, that's, that's another angle of decentralization so when you when you start to explore this thing and you see all the decisions that get made to maintain the decentralization in every one of these dimensions you really start to appreciate why this thing is so different from everything else and of course most of all there is no there is no bitcoin foundation there is no bitcoin marketing department there is no bitcoin ceo there is no bitcoin employee there is nothing right? it's, it's like nature itself right like who's the boss in nature right there's there's nowhere to look. There's no one to direct. There's no one to command. There was a very funny paragraph published, uh, but I, I don't know who it was. It's about proof of a switch to proof of stake yesterday that said Bitcoin has not announced um, any uh, any intention to change the proof of stake. Well, Bitcoin can't announce anything. I saw this article where this where this reporter was like, we sent a, a letter to one of the managers bitcoin and have not received a response <laughs> i was like wow you guys are clueless okay um let's do some announcements and then we'll go with ant good morning and welcome you're listening to cafe bitcoin we do this every day monday through friday we start at 7 a.m pacific 10 a.m eastern we roll for about two hours we talk about all things bitcoin it is the place to get your morning news and apparently a decent dose of Bitcoin philosophy every now and then. A preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin. Just come and chill, talk about what's going on. It's also a podcast up on Spotify, Apple. Everywhere that you get your podcasts, you can throw myself or Swan Bitcoin a follow to be notified of when those drop. There's a really cool show coming up pretty soon. 
Hard Money, hosted by Natalie Brunel. It's going to be a new show that uh, is being produced by Swan Studios in collaboration with Bitcoin Magazine. It's going to be one of the highest quality Bitcoin shows on the planet. So stay tuned for that because it's coming. And finally, uh, my name is Alex Danzik. I'm your host. I work with Swan Bitcoin. If you're interested in putting Bitcoin on your business balance sheet, Swan's a great way to do it because we have some of the fastest onboarding in the industry. We don't talk about this a whole lot because this is not a publicly launched product yet. But if you're curious about how to get uh, Bitcoin into your IRA, shoot me a DM. That's going to be a big thing. Um, we've already got people doing it. We just uh, we're we're making sure that it's a super smooth and elegant product before we launch it publicly. But if you want to know more, you can DM me. We've already got people going through that pipeline. <clears throat> and then finally, Swan Private. Uh, just out of curiosity, Jacob, you wouldn't happen to have that audio clip handy, would you? I can definitely get it in just two seconds. So just give me one. You know minute. what I'm talking about? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know? definitely. All right. One second. <clears throat> and and not not paid, but uh, just want to say you want a smooth and elegant self-directed IRA product that allows you to access and hold Bitcoin because the current process is nothing. There's nothing smooth or elegant about it. Peter, you sound like a man that's that's gone through some kind of crucible. <laughs> Just to confirm, I do have the audio now. If you want to have the best, all right, ad, cool, the best ad for Swan. But you, 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 you all right, all right, Okay, okay. So here's the thing: some of you guys in this room may have heard of this um, Bitcoin Giga Chad Robert Breedlove, right? This is what he has to say about Swan Private. I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest US regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity. Nice. Okay, let's keep rolling with the show. Ant, what do you got? Yeah, I was just going to mention about the coding stuff. Like, I know a lot of people think that in order to fully understand Bitcoin, you have to like be some kind of coder or super coder. But, you know, you you like you really don't like there's yes, code like there's is a big part of Bitcoin. It is what it is at its essence and all that. Like, we all know that. But and there's tons of code for you to go check out. And, and if you have the knowledge, you can even try to submit a bit. But the the there's 
a lot more about Bitcoin that isn't code. And in fact, somebody was mentioning the white paper earlier, but there's even only like one piece of the white paper, one little small piece that even has code in it. It's mostly just, you know, abstract ideas and and anybody can read these bits. Anybody can go on and like read. I mean, if you get to the coding part and you don't understand the coding part, like, you know, I mean, but the the abstract part, I mean, anybody can read these things and anybody should go out and try to read as much as these things as they can. I heard someone speaking about self-education earlier and one of the tricks that i did i've been doing this my whole life like i view uh when you read something as like a like a form of time travel i know it's not really that but it, it is in some cases where like for example you know bitcoin standard or some other book you want to read like that a lot of people have talked about well like for you know i've read bitcoin standard so like i already have that i've already made that you know, journey through time, so to speak. So now I'm actually further ahead now than someone else who's who hasn't read it yet. And now they're going to have to put in the work and the time to get to where I am. And so it's not that I'm like competing with everybody, but that's one thing that I do to drive myself. I've been doing it my whole life. I just say to myself, like, if I put in the time right now to read this and try to understand it, then it's it's going to, you know, make me better and, and more advanced and more like further ahead than the next guy. So, you know, that's one trick that I do. And, I, and I'd like to add to the, the decentralization part thing that uh, I think like most people don't understand the fact that how absurd uh, the entire concept is that like Solana is being shut down or Luna is being shut down. I, I remember like a few years ago, I had a friend of mine in so-called crypto and I told him fucking Yoda got like just sh shut down and he said yeah and i was like do you understand what that means like in general like it should not be like possible to shut a decentralized project down and this guy you know he owned some crypto whatever thought he understood the basics but you know just just the simple concept that it can't be shut down if it can be shut down it's not decentralized it's, like, it's as simple as that, but it's like something that it seems to be really, really weird, like hard to understand that, you know, if it can be shut down, it's not decentralized and end of story. And even just a simple thing like that, it, it's not simple to like most, let's put it that way. Peter, go ahead. So I'm not very good with gray. I'm good with black and white. And, you know, the, the philosophy of, of Bitcoin is really gray and for, for me. <clears throat> so I tend to rely on the facts. I like just the facts, ma'am. And, you know, you can, you can, you can go to places like time chain stats uh, or to uh, BitFeed Live and you can get a visual uh, I'm also very visual and you can get a visual understanding of the network and what is going on. And if you can, if you don't have to understand the mathematics or the poetry of Bitcoin, if you can visualize what is going on, on the base layer, on the, on the main chain, if you can visualize that, it, it just, it's like so eye opening and it's just incredible. And I think one of the things that, uh, that DJ, I think it was DJ or Jordan was saying um, earlier. It really spoke to me too. It's, it's not the, it's not necessarily that that the, the perfection of Bitcoin, which I will never be able to completely under, 
understand or the, the it's the fact that bitcoin works that that drew draw drew me to bitcoin and drew me so far down this rabbit hole <clears throat> it's the it's how quickly one sees that the the opposite is false that the you, you just as soon as you start to go into this thing you immediately see the the fragility and the impossibility of the fiat system and the end game of what fiat becomes or and money in general in the history you know alex you've done a lot of study on the history of money and this thing that was discovered or invented or however you want to say it that is bitcoin it it just is perfect it's the perfect store of energy and um it's just so mind-boggling that for me it's easier to look to look to see to look to the things that just can't stand up to it and won't work to understand um its perfection Hey Peter, what was that website you just mentioned? Timechainstats.org or Bitfeed Live. So if you go to Bitfeed Live, what you're looking at is um, and and do it on a desktop. Don't do it on your phone. That it's it is night and day. You you have to do this thing on the desktop. On the phone, it just does not. I didn't understand it until just yesterday when I was I was told to go to the desktop. But you, 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 what you're looking at is you're actually look. Oh, I, <laughs> it's timechainstats.com. My my apologies. Um, uh, when you go to Bitfeed uh, Live, you'll see what you're seeing is you're seeing the transactions inside of a block. These little things that are falling down. If you just click on one, what you'll see is you'll see inputs on one side. And outputs on the other side. And the inputs can be as simple as one input of, say, 10 Bitcoin. There can be 1,700 outputs, which will be where that Bitcoin is going. And then also there'll be a fee right at the top. There's the, there's the fee that's involved with um, that entire transaction. And these this is the this is the map of the uh, if I hope I get this right somebody correct me if I'm wrong but this is the map of the UTXO and this is what is going on on the base layer and if you can visualize what is going on on the base layer you can understand Bitcoin and you can see the perfection in action it's just it's a it's an amazing visualization of the base layer that's it awesome also, I- it also reminds me of uh, watching someone play Tetris. You know, it's funny, like when I when I orange people and I try and explain what what Bitcoin is, how it works, what the blockchain is like, I oftentimes use Legos as an analogy and people actually get like the Legos and the fact that there's Legos built on top of Legos. This is a pretty cool visualization. It's bitfeed.live is what I found. Yeah, I think the Bitfeed Live site is now called bits.monospace.live. Um, it may it may be a different one from the one, but it is it's a super highly visual um, way of experiencing. <laughs> it's kind of like a, bo- a block explorer, but without all the data. Just they're they're both visual. the same, Tomer. Um, and I okay. just use bit I just use Bitfeed Live. Uh, I just live I typed it's... Bitfeed Live into my browser and couldn't find the site, so I had to do some digging around. So maybe they've changed. Um, Maybe that's a different URL, or maybe it just wasn't working. Like I don't Bitfeed. Oh, maybe it's Bitfeed dot live. 
I just I was trying to yeah, 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 it's me dot live. Yeah, it's dot live. Got it. Yeah, I think the beauty of what we're saying is there's so many when something is true, you can come at it from any direction and it still gives off the same signal. So whether you approach it from philosophy or whether you approach it with your eyes or whether you listen to it or whether you touch it, you know, whether you come at it from programming, it's true. So they're all going to resonate with the same thing, right? Like some people listen to music and they know that music is harmonious and beautiful and they don't understand anything about musical theory, musical philosophy. That's kind of me. Right? I, I tried to study music. I couldn't, I couldn't quite get it, but I listen to it all the time. I love it. It's beautiful. And, and I think you can end up having whatever relationship suits you with Bitcoin because it's this, it's this beacon of truth and everything about it is, is verifiable to any method of verification, whether it's visual or programmatic or philosophical or experiential. And that's why I think like you have technical people like Adam Back who start with the technicals and then maybe move to the, the economy and the, that side and the philosophy. And then you have like people like maybe Tristan Fish or something who are just like macro investors who are not in, he's an engineer, I guess, but, but still they, they end up like getting more knowledge and they end up in the same place. So just just I just I just want to elicit just a little bit about this uh, uh, bitfee.live site. So one transaction I looked at was less than a Bitcoin going to 1,700 different addresses. And another one that I'm looking at is 170 inputs going to two addresses. So this is this is it's it's showing how the 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 UTXOs can be reorganized uh, and redistributed on the main chain, and it's just so beautiful. It's a mathematical Gorgeous. miracle. I'm multitasking right now. It's up to you guys. <laughs> All right. we'll, we Alex, I'm gonna angry. I'm gonna bounce. Thanks for uh, having me up today. Really appreciate you guys putting me on stage, and uh, look forward to more spaces. You guys are awesome. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, you bet. You're welcome. Welcome back anytime, Jordan. You have a great day. Let's get Thanks, sit up here. Too. Oh, look who's popping in. I see Steven Lubga. There we go. I was going to say, we're into the second hour of the show now, so it's probably time to bring up the nice. macro guys. I, I just shared the um, the both websites, timestats.com uh, uh, time and bitfeed.live. And, um, yeah, we, we often talk about these two sites as being like just such, such awesome resources done by maxis. So if you guys want to flip, um, these people, some, some love, like, um, um, Ant-Man up here, who's always humble about this. <laughs> Thanks for creating this. And then, um, Mononautical who created a uh, bit feedlot. So, Ant, I want to know, is the late, is that new release out? I know you were up doing some updates. No, first, I appreciate the love, and thanks for saying those nice things about the site and, and stuff. I appreciate that. Um, no, the new, uh, real quick, the, uh, the update is coming, but I have a, a client project in front of it. So that's, that's what's holding it back. Time Chain Stats doesn't make any money. It's just a personal site for myself that, 
you know, I have that I had to build because I didn't trust anything else. I had to have something back in 2017, 2018 that like I could have. And so it's been through different iterations. It has a sister site. Someone was talking about uh, learning words earlier, like Node. You can go to btclexicon.com. That's the sister site for uh, time chain stats. They both work together. So, and they both came out of a need for education. It's everything we're talking about. It started with me bouncing around, going to all these different you know sites, trying to get information, and then you know learning that big, huge sites that everybody have come to trust it are actually owned by by like shitcoin uh you know exchanges and and all kinds of, of crap and so i had to make something that i that i could trust and that i knew that i could go to it started as just like a a bulletin board of of you know things that i liked and then over time through community feedback it really has kind of transformed into what it is and then 07 uh update which is coming is is mostly community feedback like it's it's being like kind of like it's it's all feedback like from besides like i, I don't want to say all there, there's some improvements that i've done that i've wanted to do for a long time but mostly driven by things that people have been asking so i'm really happy that people are are enjoying it as long as i'm a bitcoiner which is going to be for the rest of my life and as long as i'm a web coder which i can't imagine that changing i have a ton of web servers i mean the, it doesn't cost me a lot to keep it up but I don't make any money from it. So, and, and I'm not going to be on here like promoting it. This is the most I've talked about it in a long time. And it's, it's because, you know, you guys show me the love. I really do appreciate that you guys like it. Timechainstats.com. Go check it out. All right. Time to switch gears. Um, we are going to do the Swan Private Macro Friday. So Swan Private Team is popping in here. We're going to get everybody up and do that. Where'd Steven go? He was just here. We're going to be clearing the decks a little bit. If we remove you from the stage, it's not personal. We're just going to make some room and bring some of these guys up here. Steven, re-throwing you an invite. Uh, John Har, if you're in the room, I don't see you. Throw your hand up. We'll grab you. We got to get Sam Callahan in here too. I'd love to get Gee Gomez in here and introduce you guys to Gee. How how big is the Swan team, Alex? Um, I'm not 100 percent certain. We're we're hiring um, really fast right now in different areas, um, so the team's growing really fast. I'm I'm not exactly sure. All right, Stephen, I threw you an invite. It's roughly uh, five dozen right now. <laughs> I think it's less than sixty people actually. God, such a yeah. huge footprint for so few people. That's crazy. It's because we all work twenty four hours a day. I'm kidding. It's making it a philosophical. It's how, how long is a piece of string? How big is Swan? Super excited for this. That is kind of the thing about Bitcoiners, though. Like, you know, I, Alex said they work all day. I mean, I, I, I know he's joking, but the, the thing is, Bitcoiners do kind of work all day. Like, we're constantly, like, learning and 
and we're on Twitter spaces. I see all these guys on Twitter spaces even at night, you know, and like pushing the mission. And I mean, we're all doing this. It's, it doesn't stop. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of joking, but I wasn't really joking. <laughs> well, well, yeah. We, what, what is it? Sailor flow that we're all going to sleep with now? Yeah, man. It's, it's about dedication and conviction and getting on the goddamn mission. Let's you go. Could, you could certainly have worse obsessions, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I end up being on a TC space late at night. It'll be TC and Aussie, and I'll fall asleep <laughs> listening to that space. You know, it's like it never stops. It's all Bitcoin for me now for the rest of my life. I'm I'm like, they say cursed objects in D&D can either be, you know, destroyed or lost. And I'm wondering if Bitcoin is a cursed object. Radio. So I want to um, introduce some of these guys for those of you who have not met them before. We have Steven Lubka up here, who is the head of Swan Private. We've also got John, who has recently joined the Swan Private team coming over from Goldman Sachs. We've got Terrence, who all of you already know and love, also part of the Swan Private team. Um, we're going to be digging into some macro stuff. So... Um, when we start off, I'm going to hand it over to you, Stephen, if you have anything you want to say. Good morning. Hey, hey, Alex. Hey, everybody. Really excited to start doing this every Friday. Had a blast last week. I um, think it's going to be a great conversation. So I've actually, yeah, I've got actually two points that I thought were interesting and I wanted to hit. I'll start off with, uh, with the first one. And it's about GDP. And it's about specifically the GDP of the U.S. And the point here is that we people, like economists, governments, market commentators, investors, people, they look to the growth of GDP to understand if we are becoming more prosperous as a country or not. We have more abundant resources or less abundant resources. If we have more ability to you know, support a, an environment that benefits us to have access to services. And the narrative, the common narrative is that, okay, like the U.S. GDP has been growing for ever, and particularly the last few decades. And I think this is heavily distorted, and it's important to understand why. Um, the U.S. GDP, in my opinion, mostly reflects inflation. It is an inflation economy. And understanding how inflation is so deeply central to what we have been calling growth, uh, I think, is really important. And when you look at how GDP is calculated and you break it down, you'll find that not only do direct inflation beneficiaries, aka financial services, the money that is made from essentially moving around money, which is economically non-productive. It may facilitate economic cohesion. It's not that there's no role for financial services, but it is essential. it's not producing more factories. It's not producing more cars. It's not producing more energy, which are the real things that we care about when we think of growth. Um, and so not only are financial services fees generated from arbitrage and trading financial instruments and lending money, not only that is that a meaningful chunk of U.S. GDP, but one of the other inputs is that 
um, private investment, right? So gross private investment. And so really breaking that down, um, you're looking at where, so you essentially have dollars in a system that are invested in assets that are being pumped up with easy central bank liquidity. And so then that creates gains and that creates more, more, you know, more money, more purchasing power. And then people, what people do is they take um, all of these, this newly created purchasing power from asset appreciation, which is just mostly inflation. People make the argument, and it's obviously not entirely untrue, that the growth in U.S. companies can represent fundamental growth. But the majority of it, in my opinion, just reflects inflation and just reflects reflects these companies catching the wind of liquidity. And you can, you can see this by looking no further than what happens when that liquidity stops. You know, is, is Netflix, Netflix 80% less valuable than it was, you know, a few months ago? You, you know, the liquidity stopped. And so these assets catch the wind of inflation, they sail their ship forward, and then these proceeds and these gains, they get reinvested. Uh, into the economy and other investments. And that counts as GDP. Um, and, and, and so this is an inflation proxy in many ways. There's a lot of different ways it happens. It's an inflation proxy. And why this matters is because it conceals a multi-decade long trend of secular stagnation in the U.S. The question, are we growing as a country? Are we growing as an economy? And if most of what we're seeing is most of our GDP growth is essentially financial engineering and inflation, the question, the answer to that becomes no. And we've papered that over. And this, this is, I think it's really important to understand how essential, how addicted, like the U.S. is an inflation economy. And um, it's it's so deeply part of the system. So I thought that was an interesting topic, and I'll uh, pass it off to uh, to anybody else. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I could add, add some thoughts there um, to what Stephen raised, and what what I would say is, I, you know, I would just uh, make it clear for everyone listening that when people quote GDP, they're they're quoting a real GDP number. Um, and the reason for that is, is nominal GDP is, is too heavily influenced by um, the amount of money that's been created in the system. So everyone kind of knows you need to talk real GDP because if you just look at the nominal number, um, you're, you're just going to capture uh, inflation kind of entirely. Um, so every, there, there's this attempt to adjust for inflation and then you come up with a real GDP number. Um, but I am very, very skeptical that we can really adjust our GDP for inflation and end up with a quote-unquote real GDP number. And, and just to elaborate on that a little bit, um, or even before I go into the problems, you just have to think that adjustment is absolutely critical. And if the adjustment is no good, then your resulting number is, is effectively garbage. Um, so basically... The problems are essentially what all the problems are with inflation. Um, and we could probably do an entire two hour long um, <laughs> session just on that topic. But just to highlight one that always jumps out to me is that 
when we say inflation, it, it's such a narrow definition. It's this consumer price inflation metric. So typically people say post the, fi- the, the great financial crisis, the period of call it, you know, 2010 to 2019 was a period of low inflation. You know, everyone says that because typically when people say inflation, they're referring to the CPI, which is more of a, a consumer um, a measure of inflation. I mean, we could talk about all the problems with that and the fact that um, it's nearly an impossible task for anyone, let alone a government agency, to properly calculate um, price increases. It, it's just impossible to take into account things like shrinkflation or quality adjustments. But anyway, let, let's just for now assume that they can somewhat approximate the changes in consumer prices. Um, even if they could do that, you're still leaving out what the changes were to things like home prices or stock prices. So people often say, yeah, 2010 to 2019 was a period of low inflation. Okay, maybe in consumer prices, but not in terms of home prices or stock prices. Um, Those were clearly inflated, and I would argue as a direct result of, of Fed policy during that time period. So if you look at that, it's, it's not a period of, of low inflation. And then just think about how those two things, home prices and stock prices, how those increases, which, which they both increased substantially during that 2010 to 2019 time period, those must have increased spending throughout the economy and therefore increased GDP throughout the economy massively. But because those two things don't um, affect real GDP because they don't show up in the official inflation number, you don't end up adjusting your GDP for those things. And I think we're starting to see the reversal of some of this where when stocks get crushed, um, you know, one of the worst five-month periods for stocks to start a year um, in, in a long, long time, we're starting to see the knock-on effects in things like consumer spending or even a, a pretty weak jobs print today. So I think we're starting to see this, this fact that um, um, GDP is heavily influenced by things like home prices and stock prices. Um, but when it reverses, then, um, GDP gets affected by it as well. Um, so anyway, I know I said a lot there. Maybe I, I can pause there and see what Steven wants to add. Yeah, no, I think those are, those are great points. There's a, there's a number of things I'd love to jump off of, but let me start. Um, so you, you, you kind of bring up this point that, um, so economists, Typically, so when we talk about money creation and when economists talk about money creation, they have a really narrow definition of that. That is bank lending. So when a bank creates a loan, they've issued money out into the economy. Um, and so then they don't call. QE is largely not defined as money creation. And specifically, appreciating asset prices is almost certainly not defined as money creation. But I think that's wrong. And I can give a really simple example to illustrate why that's the case. Let's say you take person A and they have a total of 50,000 US dollars to their name and it's in their bank account and that's all their money is in cash and that's their total net worth. Now, let's say they own a, you know, a piece of property. It's worth $10,000. It's just a little piece of land. Uh, and suddenly, you know, fortune strikes and they discover oil below the property. And now that property is worth millions of dollars, right? You've seen this asset that has inflated from $10,000 to $5 million. And so 
if you suddenly had $5 million in assets, would the way you spend that 50,000 US dollars in your bank account change at all? Are you going to spend more money because you have, quote unquote, more money? You would, and almost everybody does. It's, we can observe this. There's tons of evidence for this with increasing home prices. When, when homes are going up, people feel richer, they spend more money. It influences the behavior of money in an, in an economy. And so like this notion that um, essentially value, which has created in assets, is not money creation, I, I think is really deeply flawed. For sure. Yeah, I think it's just it's too narrow of a view from the world of economists of, of what constitutes money. Um, and, and just like for the record, we, we there's quotes from different Fed chairs. I, I believe at one point Bernanke kind of admitted that they realized there's a wealth effect that when the Fed um, engages in certain policies that affect stock prices, they know there's this uh, trickle down. I don't know if he used the word trickle down, but th that's essentially what he's getting at. The, he knows that there's this effect throughout the economy. Um, so the Fed has kind of admitted this. But when you look at economic models, they don't seem to take into account um, things like stock or home prices when they measure things like GDP or inflation and therefore real GDP. So it seems to me to be a gap in kind of thinking about about GDP. And then um, one other thing I'll mention, this is like tangentially related, but I always thought this was interesting as I, I did some reading just about GDP, where the metric came from, who came up with it um, over the years. And uh, it's a guy named Simon Kuznets who came up with the concept of GDP. And he once had a quote, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the guy who came up with the metric and he basically said that we should not be using GDP to measure the economic well-being of a country, that it's just too narrow of a measure um, and that there's too many other factors at, at play that, that would really measure the, the economic health and well-being of a country. Um, so I always thought it was interesting that the person who literally came up with that definition um, had that comment. And today, I think we've we've really forgotten that in, in pretty much every country. If you, when you see GDP stats mentioned, um, that th they effectively use it way too concretely to say, okay, GDP went up, you know, by you know six percent instead of five percent. That means everyone's better off. Or okay, GDP contracted two quarters in a row. That means it's a recession. Um, you know, do I think these things are directionally true most of the time? Yeah, I think they are. But um, I think we've just had way too much of a focus on it. And another thing that I just like laugh at when it happens is um, when you see them revise GDP by like a tenth of a percentage point. Um, this is just like excess <laughs> precision in such a ridiculous way that, that a, a government agency could calculate inflation to the tenth of a percent. And then a month or two later say, oh, no, it was actually, you know, 2.2% instead of 2.1%. Um, we're just kind of kidding ourselves that, that that level of precision is even possible. Um, so anyway, those are just some more thoughts on GDP there. Yeah. And, and that, that question of precision, right, as well as like this pursuit. So we've accepted as a society this activity of measuring inflation 
via consumer price increases. But I think there's issues with that, right? And it's a terribly imprecise science. Um, so I believe it was Milton Freeman that said, um, inflation is always a monetary phenomenon, something along those lines. And what that means is that inflation is the dilution of the money, mo the money supply. And these two concepts get intertwined, confused, manipulated. And it, it's important to look at the difference, right? Like there is a difference between creating more units of money, which is dilution, and consumer price increases. Um, and you'll see the way that the narrative will selectively choose one or both of those definitions depending on how they want to talk about inflation, right? So if consumer prices aren't going up, even though the money supply is being heavily diluted, it's low inflation. But that's not really low inflation in my mind because there's been a tremendous amount of dilution. Um, and so you can think of it a little like this, like let's say I, you know, I, I'm the Fed and I, let's just say I wire, <laughs> this isn't how it works, but kind of, but I wire BlackRock a trillion dollars, right? Okay, there's been no real, that money hasn't circulated, it, it hasn't done anything. Um, so there's no real consumer price increases, even though I have heavily diluted the money supply. Um, and so on, 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 an, on a real basis, if we think of money, like, okay, this is easy with Bitcoin because we know how many Bitcoin there are. If you have one Bitcoin, you have one twenty-one millionth of the purchasing power of the entire world, the entire money supply. Um, and if I were to suddenly create another million Bitcoin, even if it just sits in Satoshi's vault, um, there's, you now have one twenty-two. 22th million. And so there's been dilution of the money supply, even though um, there hasn't been consumer price inflation. But so then that money, you know, BlackRock starts investing it, they start buying rental properties, they start making, you know, capital investments, they start doing all kinds of stuff. And now that that money is going to circulate, and it's going to drive up prices in some places, but it's going to be very disjointed. It's going to be very unequal. And so to say that, like, we're going to get a good sense of how much monetary dilution has taken place by measuring, you know, the price of, uh, you know, gas at the pump or one of these things, it's, it's a really poor way of uh, measuring real, real inflation, especially when a lot of this money, it goes to assets, it pumps up assets. It goes into these corners. And so it's this highly selective measure um, that like, we, we could replace just by monitoring the issuance of, uh, of, of money. We'd have to classify different things as money, but they're not going to want to do that because it's highly inconvenient to the armada of financial products that rely on CPI. You know, there's so many things that rely on that number for real financial outcomes. And so having it in this way is highly convenient. All right. We're going to pause right here for a second because we've got John and Brad up here. They've got a quick announcement that they're going to make with something that they're working on. Um, and right after that, we will keep rolling 
with uh, with the discussion. So, John or Brad, whichever one of you guys wants to go first. Sure. Well, thanks for having us. It's good to see you, Alex and, and Swan, and um, the whole crew at Bitcoin Magazine, Tomer, everyone. Um, just uh, uh, Brad and I um, been doing some investing and some support and resource channeling to and trying to get people to run Bitcoin-only companies. And uh, one of the things that has happened over the last month um, since I last was here uh, talking about the Satsenis card is uh, Brad had introduced us to a team at Git Village who's um, in the audience now. I'm not sure if they want to come up and say anything, but uh, JC and I got a chance to meet the guys at Git Village who are building the, the first Bitcoin uh, kids savings account, Bitcoin only. Um, and I'm super excited because we've uh, teamed up to get Satsenis in as many hands as we can and to get um, really an educational platform, a really fun way for, for kids and families to start interacting with Bitcoin, gifting in Bitcoin, um, orange pilling aunts and uncles and grandparents by forcing them to, to give and get in Bitcoin. And so um, uh, Brad was, uh, the I guess, the real key introduction. But um, so, yeah, Brad, I'm not sure if you want to chime in or if maybe it makes sense to uh, uh, let the other guys from Get Village maybe say a couple of words on what they're working on. But thanks for having us, Alex and uh, Jacob and the whole team. Yeah, uh, so one of the things that I've been trying to do over the last year and a half, two years is pay my Bitcoin tithing and be a Bitcoin capitalist. And, you know, the narrative is waxed and waned between is Bitcoin store value is Bitcoin peer to peer cash or, you know, sometimes you get made fun of for spending your Bitcoin or whatever. But I've always taken the approach that I'm going to. You know, my life has been changed by Bitcoin, and I do think Bitcoin is going to keep going up to become a global reserve monetary asset. But I also want to deploy my Bitcoin and support people that are building Bitcoin companies and sometimes artists. I want to support people that are building art and, and culture stuff for Bitcoin, like if you're making music or whatever. So I'm finding Bitcoin entrepreneurs that they're, they're entrepreneurs that are trying to build Bitcoin businesses. And there's, there's a lot of activity in the crypto markets for this type of stuff. Like there's so much money available by all these funds that are raising billions of dollars and encouraging entrepreneurs to go build for crypto, go build for Web3 and DeFi. And for a long time, there wasn't as much demand um, present. There wasn't enough people willing to spend and willing to fund Bitcoin businesses and Bitcoin only businesses. But thankfully, over the last year, that's changed. And there's quite a few, there's quite a lot of funds that have been set up to support people looking to build on Bitcoin. And um, what I've been doing is just trying to encourage more and more of that activity. So I look at like my a po portion of my Bitcoin holdings as a tithing that I'm going to go be a Bitcoin capitalist with and go out and find people that are building interesting things and show them like, hey, you can do this Bitcoin only. Um so Village is one of those companies that they they were definitely building something really awesome. And it was something that should should have been Bitcoin only. And, you know, there was interest from the crypto VCs and like Coinbase and stuff like that to, to have like a, an app that was a cryptocurrency app to help children learn about crypto. 
crypto and things like that. Of course, the team were Bitcoin lovers and, you know, they liked Bitcoin. They were, they thought of Bitcoin as separate from everything else, but there was, there's a tough choice when you're an entrepreneur. Do you build Bitcoin only or do you go like, you know, like cash app, do you go Bitcoin only or do you just kind of like look at it like, oh, it's a big marketplace. We're just going to do crypto. And of course we're going to like Bitcoin, but I think there is a, there's a statement that we can make as Bitcoiners to adopt and invest in entrepreneurs that are building the Bitcoin only vision. And so a, a few of us have been <laughs> trying to do that, right? We've been going out and finding businesses that would make great Bitcoin only businesses. And Village is one of those awesome projects. I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be super relevant and influential and, and, a, and a really great product and a really great tool for Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. Um, and they've committed to, you know, through, through, through many conversations, uh, with the team members over the years they're they see the, they see that there's the ethical way forward is to do this as a Bitcoin only project, because you don't want to have kids teach kids about saving in metaverse coins or saving in altcoins, because by the time they turn 18, they may not even exist anymore. And Bitcoin is sound money and you should save in Bitcoin. So for an app like this, it would be it would have been easy for them to go and try to, you know, accept the money from uh, Silicon Valley folks that have pre-mines of altcoins like Earn.com that pays you to learn about random coins. But thankfully, we've got a, a real strong community now of Bitcoin capitalists who support entrepreneurs like like the guys at Village. And. I'm just super pumped to see that like the Satsenevs team has linked up with the village team because this now it's like they're on the right path for sure. There's strong Bitcoiners on the team and there's strong Bitcoiners on the cap table. And that's what we want to see like Bitcoiners building Bitcoin businesses with Bitcoiners on a cap table. And, you know, one of the best things about this team is that they're not just Bitcoiners. Like they've got experience in the financial markets they're an experienced team that have had had successful exits before. They're experts in this field. And I just anyway, that's enough for me. I'm just super pumped to see that this is happening, that they've committed to go Bitcoin only. And I've invested in them and uh, I'm, I'm trying to help them raise money from other Bitcoin venture capitalists. So if you if you are a, a accredited investor and you're interested in investing in the seed round, um, reach out to me and I will put you in the right conversation. Um, I don't I don't know if we have a just another minute, but would love to introduce the Jeff and, and Jimmy, who are the founders, uh, two of the three founders that I give Village. But Brad, Brad mentioned a lot there, and, and I don't want to add too much there. But like one of the things that, that was really obvious for us in terms of like the decision for set incentives to um, to team up with Get Village was was there was this like we'd work backwards, like the eventual product that we wanted to build is, and, and started with set incentives was just creating something real for kids. Um, Satsenevs is meant to be a toy for kids and a tool for parents to just be able to talk to their to their kids. Hey, um, Jimmy and Jeff, if you guys can just go on mute, I think there's some reverb coming out of your mic, and I, and I promise to introduce you guys. But the, the the real take was like trying to create three things and pattern behavior, teach them about proof of work through a more transcendent component than just like how the consensus mechanism works on Bitcoin, but using that as a real like lesson in life, and so kids can earn you know, sats and by doing chores or getting good grades or just, you know, performing and behaving, you know, the or incentivizing the behaviors that parents want for kids. But 
Bitcoin never leaves a blockchain. And so we wanted something tangible for kids, something simple, something that would interact with lightning. And so we built this thing, but we, we knew that the, the eventual path forward was to have an educational component to it, a community component to it, and eventually a, a, a financial product that would really enable kids to get access to, um, like for, for a lot of parents, I'm sure you guys save in 529 plans for your kids. Um, basically, Village has worked on um, um, creating the first Bitcoin um, um, exposure to 529 plans. And so, you know, they're working really diligently toward, you know, allowing for parents to really start thinking about college savings or vocational training savings in like a more realistic sense. Like the cost of things are going absolutely absurd. College is amongst the worst of those. And so you start to think about, oh my God, for the average, you know, American who's struggling with the inflationary pressures and just all the things that, that it costs to raise a family, and you start to think about what college might cost in, in U.S. dollar terms um, in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And like what makes that realistic? Well, what makes that realistic is being able to invest maybe a tenth of what you thought you might need to in, in dollar terms in Bitcoin and allowing for that to, to appreciate um, and, and do what Bitcoin does over the next 10 or 15 years. And so if you're, you're long Bitcoin, if you believe in Bitcoin the way a lot of us do, it's like such an exciting thing for parents to take some of their savings and put that in. Um, to some type of college savings plan with Bitcoin exposure. And so um, I won't bore you guys much longer. Alex, thanks. And I just wanted to maybe let Jimmy or Jeff fill in any other gaps. And then just because there's probably a lot of information, I put the I put a tweet in the nest. If you guys want to sign up, um, I would encourage you guys to, um, to learn more. Um, and if you want to get some more information on the products and get early access, you can go ahead and sign up. But just wanted to let everyone know that Satsana is super excited to be partnering up with uh, with uh, Get Village and appreciate all the support across the community on on this on this effort. Right on. Okay, um, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna apologize to you guys because this was kind of um, a little bit unplanned, um, and we were trying to stay focused on the on the macro segment for the rest of the show. So what I'm gonna suggest we do, guys, with Village app, let's get you on um, on the first hour of of something maybe next week. And we'll do a little bit more of a deep dive on what you guys are doing. Really appreciate what you guys are doing for the community. Um, so thanks very much for coming by um, and hanging out. And we're just going to keep rolling. We we have um, we're going to skip a little little bit of our announcements part and just keep rolling with the macro discussion. Let's go to Terrence, um, and then we'll go with Shane and um, and back around to the rest of the Swan team. Uh, sure. So I posted in the nest. Um, information about how big the financial services sector is as a part of U.S. GDP. When I worked on Wall Street, I loved it. But now that I'm a Bitcoiner, I realize this is an abomination. We are 8% the financial, not we, the financial services sector, formerly, uh, is 8% of U.S. GDP. That is way too high. Think about how much um, you're being charged when you have your assets at Vanguard or wherever, it's 1% or less, right? So for that to be 8% of GDP, there's like fees and charges and economic activity, much of it uh, not that useful, all over the place to add up to 8%. I just think it's alarming. Absolutely. And I, and I think even that, that, that number almost understates it because you then have kind of money generated from that that then gets spent in the economy you have you know kind of fees capital gains all these kind of financial kind of derivative functions then also go and create kind of spending in gdp in other places too 
Yes. Change up in here. Or not. Okay, you your hand up. Yeah. Okay, so we have not heard yet from Sam Callahan yet. Good morning, Sam. How you doing? Hey, man. Good morning. Uh, just kind of jumping in here and catching up. But, um, you know, I think it's really cool what Brad and John were doing, like being a Bitcoin capitalist. And back to what uh, Stephen was kind of talking about, about how spending isn't necessarily what drives um, economic growth, it's investment and savings and productivity and technological advancements. And, um, you know, Bitcoin kind of represents that as like a really great savings technology. And now we see people like Brad and John who are investing in other companies. And that's what drives economic growth, you know? So I, I just think that's really cool what they're doing. Um, and then it's interesting because I'm always writing and including those metrics that we just talked about where we have CPI and GDP. And there's obviously flaws with those metrics that uh, kind of Stephen was touching on. And, but the fact is that I see the economy as a huge like, economic machine driven by human emotions. And most market participants still view those metrics as legit. And they haven't dug into the nuance of why they're flawed. And so they still move markets when the inflation numbers come out, when GDP numbers come out. They, they're what everyone's looking at. So they still have meaning because everybody's looking at them and they move markets. So I still kind of touch on them in my market updates because they still matter to a lot of people. And like I said, they still move markets. So it's just something that I kind of think about because I struggle because I'm like, why am I even talking about these metrics? Because they're silly. Like they don't even make sense fundamentally. But I think that's how I kind of stomach it is because they still matter from like a just broad uh, people still care about them. So they still matter kind of thing. So I don't know if that um, makes sense. I don't know if Stephen can touch on that. Yeah, no, thank you. I, and, I, and I mean, they, they, you know, like John said, I think there's a directional nature to them. Like, they're probably relatively directionally correct, even if like the absolute number is off. And even if they weren't, like you said, Sam, I mean, these are things that are built into the very structures of the financial system. And, you know, they do move markets. So we're, we're, we're going to talk about them one way or the other. Um, something like on this, on this notion of uh, kind of, we're talking about like the real value, real economic growth. And that's a, a tricky thing to define. Um, something I would throw out there is that you can't separate. So if we're asking the question, like, is the U.S. economy actually fundamentally growing? And a way that I personally, this isn't a widely accepted way of looking at it, but I personally would say that you can't separate that from the total availability of energy. Like energy is the economy. Um, and that also includes human energy. So before we got, you know, fossil fuels, nuclear, renewables, the energy we used was food energy. So caloric energy in human energy to produce human energy, labor energy. But so at, at no point, I think, in, in, in history, can you separate human economic growth from the availability of energy. And as we got more availability of energy, either because more humans were born who can exert more energy or greater food supplies, or because we invented machines that burn and consume energy to maximize our impact on the world. 
Um, and so for asking this question, like, is the U.S. growing? I think the first question we would ask is, okay, how much more energy do we have? How much more energy are we producing? Can we produce? And that's where we get into some, I think, concerns on a stagnation that isn't reflected in, um, you know, in, 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 in GDP, right? Um, yes, you know, there's a growth in renewables, but that's largely a replacement right? It's not really bringing new energy capacity. The goal is to replace old energy capacity. And I think if we look at, you know, we just look at the U.S. attitude towards energy, towards industry, towards production. Since the 70s, it has been largely uh, demonized, right? Like there is this, uh, I think Alex Epstein uh, does a fantastic job with this, where he highlights how the dominant ideology is essentially um, minim minimizing human impact. It's essentially anti-human. And I think that this ideology, not just across energy, but across industry, across production, has caused us to kind of retreat into the digital world where we can have these kind of virtual experiences that um, you know don't really have the same sort of don't require us to actually exert human will or have impacts on the environment. The thing is, is like virtual experiences do not create economic growth. They don't create GDP. Um, and we're facing a real problem. So just to tie this into the other point I wanted to hit. So we're watching inflation come as the result of many things, but also Fed economic policy and stimulus. And it's common knowledge that the last several years, decades were low inflation for the most part. Um, but I think something that's critical to understand is monetary printing, dilution, continued during that time. There's plenty of money that was created in various forms. But what happens is because we measure it via consumer price increases, um, it gets offset by technological improvements. And so we lived in this still pretty dynamic time in the 80s and 90s where we built a bunch of previous industrial capacity and technology was improving. And this natural deflation that, you know, Jeff Booth talks about this, this natural deflation that's brought on by technological progress creates a smokescreen that the money printer can hide behind. Because if the money printer is driving the prices up, but technology is bringing it down, then we can say, oh, look, it's low inflation. Central bank policy is effective. It's responsible because, look, we've hit our holy 2% number. But what if, what if, what if actually the, the central bank policy and the monetary printing is creating a substantial inflationary pressure up while just technology is bringing it down, you know, reducing 80% of the impact? So then to kind of bring it together, we fast forward to 2020. And we've had these anti-industrial policies. We've had this demonization of growth. And so when we no longer have that technological progress driving prices down, then all we're left with is the impact of central, central bank mismanagement driving prices up. And so we're staring inflation in the face today. And we're seeing the impact of central bank policies. We're seeing the impact of how our financial system is structured. And we're also seeing the impact of the U.S. essentially walking away from real economic growth. 
I think that's great. Um, I'll just add a few comments um, about Stephen's point of uh, different ways. This is how I interpreted some of what Stephen said, different ways to measure economic growth or just economic health um, because of all the problems of uh, the current methodologies we use, one of which we're focusing on today, which is adjusting things for CPI. Um, so Stephen kind of threw out the idea of a society's energy usage being one way to potentially measure the economic growth or, or health of a, of a country or a society. Um, I, I think that it, it's important for anyone to think about alternative ways to, to measure these types of things because it, it's an incredibly difficult metric to distill down into one number or a set of numbers um, so it's worth everyone thinking about how we can do this better. But the one thing I'm sure of is that the current system and the current methodology has way too many shortcomings. Um, so, so we do need better, better metrics. Um, one that I've always liked the idea of, um, but it requires us to have a sound money system, is looking at the prices of things over time. And if they come down over time, that is a measure of human progress. We could look at, you know, whatever it is, a car, uh, uh, extracting a barrel of oil out of the ground, um, a refrigerator. I mean, literally, you know, food processing, literally anything. If we lived in a sound money world, you could look at those things and say, wow, 10 years ago, it cost X to, you know, create a refrigerator. But because of all companies doing great things in terms of efficiency, productivity, innovation, um, now a refrigerator costs, you know, half the price that that's human progress. Um, but because of the, the way the mainstream thinks about inflation and, and of course the central bank controlling the money supply, this is basically just not possible. Um, and then I'll just make a couple more comments about inflation, um, because I don't think it should be considered to be the same thing as increasing prices, which unfortunately it is. Um, I think we need better terminology here. And I'll just give two examples to consider. And, and yes, they're ridiculous examples, but they're, they're just to prove a point. Let's say some country invades Saudi Arabia and takes 100% of their oil production offline. And the price of oil goes to, I don't know what, $300 a barrel. This would, of course, lead to an increase in consumer prices. But um, does it make sense to call that inflation and, and deem it to be something that a central bank must respond to by increase it uh, by manipulating interest rates and increasing the money supply. I mean, to me, that just doesn't follow logically at all. And you could think about the reverse example. Some country uh, eas finds easily accessible oil reserves. They're equivalent to the size of Saudi Arabia, their oil reserves, and the price of oil drops to, I don't know, five bucks a barrel. Uh, this would, of course, lead to significant decreases in consumer prices, but I, I don't think anyone could logically say this now opens the door for the central bank to print a bunch of money so that we have consumer prices stay the same as they were a month or a year ago. Um, that To me, that's just ridiculous. I don't see how anyone could say that's logical. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is just a, a funny thing I saw on Twitter at some point. Um, so I'm going to do this as a verbal meme, which I know is always a risk. But uh, one person posts a picture of an asteroid and says it's on its way to hit the earth with the question of what would you do? And some very clever person responds and says, well, of course you would lower interest rates. Um, so it, it's just, <laughs> it's just a ridiculous, um, I thought it was a pithy way of saying, 
we rely far too heavily on monetary policy as a tool. And we think it's supposed to keep prices the same as they were a month or a year ago. But I would just entirely reject the idea that prices are supposed to stay the same over time. Um, there, there's no reason to assume the price of anything should remain the same over time because there are thousands or, or probably millions of factors that causes price that cause prices to go up or down. Monetary policy is just one of those factors, but it's clearly not the only one. Um, like I said, of course, companies exist to make things cheaper, um, and, and prices are essentially a signal that convey information. Monetary policy just usually has the effect of distorting that information. But anyway, bigger, bigger picture, I think this point of the fact we need to come up with alternative ways to measure economic growth or health is super important because there's just far too many pitfalls with uh, the current way of doing things. All right. So we've got a couple minutes left in the show. I wanted to take a moment and uh, introduce to everyone Guy Gomez. Guy Gomez is joining uh, Swan uh, as the chief revenue officer. He's coming over from um, some of you guys may have uh, heard of Bridgewater Capital. So super excited to have Guy as part of the team. And um, I think when he can, he's an extremely busy guy, but when he can, he may join us in the future for additional um, Swan Private Macro Fridays. Good morning, Guy. Good morning, Alex. First time here. Is it working? It is working. Yes. We hear you loud and clear. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me and welcome everyone. Actually, it's my first time joining. So it's, thank you so much for having me. And what an interesting uh, discussion about inflation and macro. And I guess we're going to be doing that every single Friday and I'll do my best to join you guys. Just sharing a few thoughts. So as Alex mentioned, I'm joining from Bridgewater and most what what the firm does is trying to understand the macroeconomy, how the economy runs, what's going on, and trying to use that understanding to trade markets. And just adding a little bit to the discussion here, uh, especially from inflation and what's going on, why we're seeing inflation hitting CPI numbers, and what is different today than the past decade. Because as... Uh, Stephen was saying has been money has been created so uh, what's different now than before and I think one interesting concept is just thinking about flows and what I mean by that is when you think about what was quantitative easing for the past 10 years which is printing money and buying assets so what we saw was a major, major appreciation on asset prices because what was going on was uh, we were creating money, buying assets, and asset holders were essentially buying more assets. So we saw all financial assets having a major, major appreciation in price, but not as much on CPI. And now we are in a different uh, environment, which is monetary policy working with fiscal policy. So we're not only printing money, but we're printing money and putting that money on the hands of people through fiscal policy. So we're issuing checks, we're sending 
uh, we're doing a lot of different approaches on that. And that's where we start to see uh, consumer prices to go up and CPI numbers as high as uh, they have ever been over the past 50 years. So that's an interesting concept to keep in mind and to help understand a little bit of what we have in place. What is the difference from the past, let's call it two years, from the past decade? It's not that uh, inflation was not going on or like the creation of money was not taking place. The main difference from my perspective is that now we have a different type of flow. It's not going only into financial assets, but it's going on the hands of people and people are just spending on cars, goods, services, and that's what is showing up on CPI. So just trying to add a little bit uh, from my perspective to the conversation. Again, thank you so much uh, for having me. Uh, I'll be here listening and chiming in a little bit when possible and hope to be here soon again and maybe we can do uh, other topics as well. Uh, thank you for thank you for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure, and it's been uh, fantastic having you on Team Swan. So I think uh, you, you raised some really good points. And so one of the you know one of a few factors that's going on is we've seen this rise of fiscal policy. Uh, I want to give an example of something that one of our uh, representatives uh, it was a proposal that was submitted. I think it was an opinion piece in the New York Times this morning. And it was, and I think this represents, uh, I'm not sharing this just to kind of poke holes in the proposal, I'm, although I'm going to do that. Um, I'm sharing it also to talk about how this represents the rise of more fiscal policy and that there's going to be more of a fiscal uh, leaning as we continue to struggle with some of the challenges we're facing. Um, and so this proposal was quite simple. It was the government should create a committee that buys the dip on commodity prices and then sells those commodity price, commodities to Americans at a discount. And this was a very serious proposal. Um, and so some of you might be laughing and others, you know, maybe wondering where, where, where that breaks down. And one of, one of the profound flaws, besides just this represents a direct liquidity injection into essentially what are raw inputs to the economy, um, is every time in human history that we've seen these sort this is price controls. I mean, first of all, this is a form of government price control, which has always failed. And it is also the form, it is also a form of obviously like central planning. And every time we have seen these sort of central interventions in markets, they don't, they don't go well. Um, but this is essentially where I think we're going to see the administration and any administration, whoever it is, I, I think the administration is going to be increasingly pushed into probably not this, but corners that are more fiscally driven um, the IMF recently uh, just announced that they want governments to support people with food and energy purchases. And uh, this means direct cash assistance, whether in the form of cash or in the form of vouchers or, you know, however they want to engineer it. But I would expect to see more of this. I think it's where government is going. And obviously the, the, the real issue with it is this will be incredibly inflationary. And um, it's because 
we're dealing with a we're dealing with a shortage. We we have a real supply shortage of these things. We have a shortage of oil. We have a shortage of food. Um, huge production was brought offline, and it was a, a bomb that was dropped on top of decades of underinvestment. Yeah, for sure. the 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 entire issue with all the supply chain madness that's going on um, is only exacerbating the problem. And the, you know, when you when you talk about the food for supply chain, looking forward eighteen months out, that's where the real problems are going to start. Because when you see all of the um, sort of the issues with getting fertilizer, et cetera, I mean, I live in an area where I'm surrounded by farmers. It's farms and ranches as far as the eye can see. These guys' fertilizer costs are absolutely skyrocketing. So, um, yeah, there's going to be a there's going to be a continuation effect. All right, let's get some closing comments. If anybody wants to make some closing comments, and they will, then we will wrap the show. Sid, <laughs> did you have something you want to add? Yeah. So I've been ta- listening to this whole in inflation discussion. Um, this is Sid, everyone. I'm riding a motorcycle around the country, going to Bitcoin meetups. And one thing that I've noticed, I've done about 6,000 miles all over the country, mostly on state roads, going to small towns. And obviously, I'm going to restaurants, eating out a lot. And every single restaurant and business has a hiring for everything sign, which is very strange. I've never seen that before. And I'm also seeing it's really common to have... um, credit card costs now pass to consumers. And I can tell it's not, this is not a thing that has existed at these restaurants because they're taped up paper signs that say like, due to increasing costs, we have to charge 3% if you use a credit card. I've also seen hospitality charges added to checks of 3%. Uh, One restaurant had a $1 flat fee added to every check that they said is so that they don't have to change their menus and update their prices. And that's something that I, I've just never experienced in my life in the U.S. Yeah, well, you're going to – I think you're moving forward. You're going to see all kinds of different reasons that people are – are restaurants are going to give all kinds of reasons. Everybody's going to give all kinds of reasons yep. as to why the prices of things are going up. But the bottom line is their costs are increasing. There's a local yeah. restaurant in town that just closed permanently because they're looking at the, the price of food you know, eggs and everything skyrocketing, they're going to have to pass those costs on to their customers. And there needs to be a justification to do that. And there are some markets where the customers are just not going to pay the extra amount. So therefore they're just done. So yeah, I think we're going to see that more moving forward. Yep. Um, I'd like to uh, take, okay. So we're already a couple minutes over time. I'd like to just go around um, and ask if Sam or Steven or John Har has any closing comments. Um, I'll kind of throw something in there. I just, what John was talking about where, um, in a sound money standard, you know, you would see prices decrease and that'd be a way to kind of measure economic growth. And I think, you know, measuring economic growth under a Bitcoin standard will be very different. You know, it'll be similar to like something like CPI, except growth will be correlated with price decreases. And so, you know, Bitcoin is volatile right now because it's only a, whatever, like 600 billion asset still in price discovery mode, you know, Bitcoin becomes widely adopted over the next few decades. Volatility should decrease substantially. And then you'd start to see um, 
slow and steady appreciation of the price in line with economic growth. And that's kind of, I think, where we're going to see, you know, Bitcoin is going to be that measure of economic growth um, by looking at how, how fast the price increases or decreases. And I just want to throw that out there because I think Bitcoin is that thing that will be the measure of economic growth. I, I love that. And then the only thing I want to say is I also love the comments that, that Sid made. I think that's a super unique perspective. There's not that many people that are seeing um, so much of the country in such a short period of time and have that kind of firsthand info to share. So um, I think, I think that was awesome. I think that's um, some pretty high quality firsthand information. Thanks, man. Something. So I think as a closing comment, I, I think civilization is a fragile creature, right? We, we look at our society, we look at our government, and we find this monolith, this leviathan that is like untouchable, that has power over us, that we can't, it's very difficult to influence. And so we think it is this very solid, solid, substantial thing. But I think it's actually so much more fragile than that. And we have the ability, like, we need to make sound decisions to continue this human civilization. We need to make the right choices. And if we make the wrong choices, it, it's a fundamental risk to the, the stability and, and continuation of uh, human civilization. One reason Bitcoin matters so much, it matters for a lot of reasons, but one reason it matters is that a lot of um, the dysfunctional stuff going on in the world today is exacerbated tremendously by the monetary standard, by the easy ability to create monetary energy and, and capital and direct it to things which are not economically or civilizationally sound. And Bitcoin puts a, puts a, a much bigger barrier um, on the ability for, for that to happen. Um, but it's but it's valuable because it, it impacts these other areas, ener areas like energy production, areas like the philosophy that we bring to our undertakings, our human undertakings. And we need to, we need to regroup um, because it, living in the kind of modern abundance in the United States, um, it, it has caused so many people that are driving human thought and policy to just become increasingly disconnected from physical reality. And I, I, I hope and believe that Bitcoin is going to be one of the things that can bring people back to sound decision-making, uh, which is something we need urgently. Yeah, 100%. There's that saying that... Um dishonest money creates a dishonest culture you have to have honest money you have to have um, a solid monetary foundation otherwise really everything in the culture starts to go haywire the institutions start to become corrupted the morality of the people starts to become corrupted um you know and and things that are not honest start to become rewarded in a monetary system that works that way. And it leads to kind of where we are today. If we want to save our civilization, in my opinion, we absolutely, I agree. We absolutely must turn that around. 
And um, I think Bitcoin is probably the best vehicle we have to do that. This has been a great discussion today, guys. Appreciate you guys coming. You have been listening to, for the second half of this thing, the Swan Private team talking about macro and Bitcoin. We're going to do this every Friday. For those of you who are interested in that, it'll be the second half of the show. That's a wrap. You have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do this every day, Monday through Friday. We start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for about two hours. We talk about all things Bitcoin. Um, Before I finish the outro announcements, um, Chris, did you have anything you want to hit real quick? Yeah, but I'll be real brief. Uh, We're doing Bitcoin Magazine Live on YouTube, Rumble, Twitch uh, from 1 p.m. Eastern to 3.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, We're going to have Jimmy Song on as well as News and Notes. We're talking about two of Jimmy Song's articles, uh, basically why fiat science and fiat education are failing. So really looking forward to that. I'll see you guys all there. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, Bitcoin Magazine, producers of the show, my crew, Aunt Shane Sats for Life, producer Jacob Pope. Uh, Thanks again to the speakers. Appreciate what you guys do. Uh, I'm your host, Alex Danzig. I work with Swan Bitcoin. You can shoot me a follow or a DM if you want to know more about swan shoot me a dm um and yeah that's it appreciate everybody get on the mission everybody go out there have a great day love you guys crush it